We are the men who. So call this road of life the Strip of Las Vegas. On either side of us, we've got big flashy lights there. Each one of them is designed to try and grab our attention. I think what meditation does for me is slowly but surely over the course of 10 minutes, 20 minutes, half an hour, however long it is, is learning how to turn each of those lights off one by one, such that all is in front of me is the road and the lights that I've either chosen to keep on or the lights that I've designed, the ones that I want to tune into, the ones whose attention I want to give to. And I suppose the goal for me when I sit down and meditate is to come to the end of that road and only be focusing on the lights that I want to be focusing on, rather than what everyone else is trying to um, get me to think or do or say or act or behave. Welcome to The Men Who Talk, the men's mental well-being podcast brought to you by The Men Who. The Men Who is a men's collective for actively maintaining positive mental well-being. With The Men Who, men have the opportunity to talk, listen, support, care for and help themselves and each other build meaningful connections in person, online and together. Together it's our purpose to raise the power of sharing what's on our mind and make it easier for men everywhere to access their well-being potential. Join us on this lifelong journey. We are the men who, and welcome to the men who talk. Joe, my old friend, uh, a very warm welcome back to the Men Who Talk podcast. How are you, mate? Thank you. It's always a pleasure to be here. I'm good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, I'm really good. I'm good, thank you. I think um, you, you're technically not a guest, right? Um, in fact, you're not a guest at all. You are, just to remind some of the listeners, co-founder, trustee of the Men Who, um, but I guess you're the first person to come back onto the Men Who Talk and talk. Indeed, I couldn't resist. It was too fun the first time. Too fun the first time. So um, we've been trying to organize this particular episode for, I'd say, over a month now. Um, mm-hmm. And when we reveal what the topic of the discussion is, I think um, I, mean, I think we'll be in need of it after this because it's been quite frustrating to get this together. But why don't you introduce to um, why don't you introduce to the listeners today a reminder of who you are, what you do, but also what the topic of the conversation is going to be? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so. Yeah, I teach yoga and meditation and consider myself kind of um, a daily meditator. I don't know if that's what you want to call it, but it's uh, meditation is a huge part of my life. And it's something I both kind of regularly do and teach. And I just thought it would be really interesting to dig into um, this topic because meditation is a word that kind of evokes. I don't know what it evokes in anyone who's listening's mind because it's such a diverse thing, meditation. So we kind of wanted to maybe give a little overview of what our practices are, me and you, John, and then also kind of talk a bit about the benefits of meditation and finally, how to start a meditation practice, which is the big, big thing. It's the, it's the hardest thing to do to convince yourself to sit down and be in silence for half an hour a day, and yet the benefits from it are so huge. So we're going to kind of go into those topics today. Brilliant, brilliant. As you say, it's um, it's a topic or a word that I think will evoke a lot of different responses from a lot of people, not only in terms of how they define it, but also in how they practice it. Um, and I think you and I are going to go back and forth today and understand, you know, what it means for you, what it means for me. I think I also want to learn a bit from you about it because I've been doing it for a while, but I am newer to it than you. So I'm keen to learn. And then as a little bonus for the listeners, you've um, you've also recorded a bit of a guided meditation as well, haven't you? Yeah. So following this episode, because I, I think one of the hard things is that because meditation is so diverse, it's very hard to describe linguistically. It's very hard to get across exactly what it is or what it means. 
So for that reason, we've designed, we've got this recorded audio meditation for you guys to do. It's just 10 minutes. You could do it in the morning. You could do it in the evening, whenever you can fit it into your day. And it's just a really simple guided exercise that kind of takes all of the, the woo out of meditation and just lets you experience it itself. The woo. The woo. I love that <laughs> word. I love yeah. woo personally. <clears throat> I, really I, love woo. I love woo too. Um, <laughs> well, look, I think so. So we're going to drop the um, we're going to drop the guided meditation after this episode. So if, for those of you tuning into this first, then please head back on to the men who on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and download that as well and give it a go. Try and apply some of the lessons that Joe and, and hopefully I can bring to you today. And again, as with every episode, we'd love to invite your comments and questions and, and contributions um, for us to bring forward into future conversations as well. Mm. So, Joe, uh, obvious place to start. To you, what is meditation? This is honestly the hardest question. Um, it's such a diverse thing. And I think to boil it down, and I can only speak from my own experience, because I, I kind of come from a tradition of um, yoga and uh, some Buddhist training as well. So my kind of style of meditation is very specifically grounded in those traditions. But I would say that there are types of meditation across all different kinds of religions. In Christianity, you might call it prayer. In Islam, there's the whirling dervishes, the spinning dervishes, which spin and get into this meditative state. So maybe a better way to talk about meditation is as a state, a way of being. It, it's, it's a way of approaching reality that is slightly different than how we've maybe been taught. So I think one of the main things that meditation tries to do for you, the practice over time, is distinguish between what is real and what is story? What is interpretation on reality? So a great example is pain as, as a sensation, the physical sensation of pain. So the Buddhists call it the two poison darts. And the first dart hits you, say that your skin is pierced, and you'll feel a physical sensation of pain. It'll kind of correspond with neurons in the brain, which will give you a sensation. But then after that, there's the sensation or there's the story that your mind applies to the pain. So there's the ow, that's sore. There's the performance of kind of looking around to see if anyone else has seen it. Um, there's the reaching for something to address the problem, which are all kind of building upon that initial thing, which is the sensation itself. And that raw sensation is what meditation is trying to get you tapped into, trying to get you out of the storylines, out of the interpretations of reality, and into actually what's real. And I think the most common way of doing that um, the most common way of meditating is just by sitting, lying down, closing your eyes, and trying to focus on one thing at a time to try and see if you can distinguish between what's real and what's story in it. So for example, the breath. When I breathe in the morning, if I'm paying attention to my breath, I'll feel the sensations in my body of air moving through my, my lungs, and that will create kind of physical movement in my body. But then there's also what accompanies that is a oh, I'm a bit stiff there this morning, or um, why can't I breathe as deeply as I did yesterday, or what's going on with the sound of the breath coming in my nostrils, which are all secondary to the breath sensation. And essentially the benefit of meditation, why we, why we meditate, what we, what we do that for, is so that when we're hit in our lives with something that's difficult, we know how to distinguish between the realness of the pain or the, or the discomfort, and the extra stories we're telling on top of that that continue that pain. And I think to put it in a more grounded example, if you're having a conversation with a friend and you disagree about something, it's 
very easy to get caught in the stories about why you're different because of that disagreement. But ultimately, you know, if you focus on the reality, you're both humans, you're both grounded in this moment talking, and that's enough similarity to keep you connected and friendly towards each other, even if there's a disagreement. And I would say that in, you know, it, it's like no more, there's no better time for meditation than now when so many people are um, caught in those disagreements, which are in fact just stories and, and stories of difference rather than actual difference. Um, so that's, that's kind of a small window into my interpretation of what meditation is. But John, I'd love to hear what you think, given you're, you've been practicing for a little while now. What is it to you? Yeah, so as I said at the start, I'm, I'm not as far down the journey as you, and I've, I, I don't come from a background whereby I suppose meditation is central to it, I guess, or, or kind of as closely linked to, to what it is that you do um, as a vocation. But I, have, I did choose to pick it up a couple of years ago, principally through um, guided meditation, so using some of the well-known apps out there, and I've tested a few. And I think I'm probably at the point now where I can just about meditate without the need for guidance, although I do find it incredibly useful, particularly when you're starting out in terms of yeah, helping you understand what it is and, and how you actually meditate. In terms of what it means to me, um, I, I suppose it's, it's accessing the core of the mind, uh, a, a place in the brain or the mind that in most of your waking life isn't normally or naturally at the forefront, right? So, so we've talked before on this podcast and people will be very familiar with the concept of the inner voice, you know, the voice that is, or the inner monologue, the voice that is always on inside your head, telling you good things about yourself, telling you bad things about yourself, telling you the stories about the world that you have created or that have been created for you. And these are all based on our experiences when we're growing up. So our formative experiences. And I think they, I don't think they, they sort of naturally fall away, particularly the formative ones that are perhaps placed in there by people who are influential in our lives. So parents, friends, teachers, people we look up to and i think these narratives just sort of take on their own being with inside your mind and they kind of inf influence your conscious and subconscious decision making in everyday life um i think what meditation enables me to do is is tap into this core whereby and none of these kind of stories or or narratives necessarily have a voice um so i was reaching this kind of inner part and saying right not not necessarily looking at right what am i feeling today or how am i feeling but um why am i feeling that or let's just let's just notice and observe the fact i am feeling something and strip away all the associations with that, that that it's necessarily should or should be a good feeling or a bad feeling and say well it's just a feeling let that feeling be see how quickly it passes um i think if i had to give it if i had to put a, a vision on it or, or kind of create a metaphor in the mind the way I tend to look at it is we're all walking down a big, long road, right? And call that road the, the Strip in Las Vegas. I've never been, by the way, but I've seen pictures. So call this road of life the Strip of Las Vegas. And either side of us, we've got big flashy lights there. Each one of them is designed to try and grab our attention. And they've all been decided, designed by someone else. Yet we're walking down this road. I think what meditation does for me is slowly but surely over the course of 10 minutes, 20 minutes, half an hour, however long it is, is learning how to turn each of those lights off one by one, such that all is in front of me is the road and the lights that I've either chosen to keep on or the lights that I've designed, the ones that I want to tune into, the ones who attention I want to give to. 
And I suppose the goal for me when I sit down and meditate is to come to the end of that road and only be focusing on the lights that I want to be focusing on rather than what everyone else is trying to um, get me to think or do or say or act or behave. So that would, that would be my description of it. Um, that's how I choose to visualize it in my head when I'm actively meditating is walking down that road. That's a really beautiful metaphor and image. I, I think that's a really good way of describing it. Finding a way to focus on what you want to focus on and not to have your attention drawn in all these millions of directions that are constantly calling for our awareness. Um, and I think you've, you've hit on that really well, that idea of this centering that happens within meditation. As you, as you sit in silence, the idea is that you're not trying to find anything. You're not trying to grab anything. The whole point is that you're doing nothing. Um, and within that doing nothing, it's quite radical in a culture that ties time to money and time to productivity and that kind of asks more and more of us in each moment. Meditation is like a deconditioning device for that trauma, which is like, no, it's good to do nothing. Doing nothing is good for your health. It's good to find these centered highways of your reality, of your consciousness, where you can see the Las Vegas flashing light. You know, I have been there and it is very distracting as you walk down that main strip. It's uh, you get to the end and you're exhausted. But, you know, the inside of my mind used to look like that. And I used to be exhausted at the end of every day just from constantly looking at all these different stimuli all the time and thinking that I need to be involved with every one of them. And instead, you know, meditation asks you to really pare down the stimuli, sit in a silent room, turn off all music, just listen to your environment, listen to your inner world. What is your mind telling you? What is your body telling you? And don't get attached to any of it. So don't think of any of it as more important than the other. And I think you mentioned, John, like the, when you kind of, you have all these unacknowledged storylines going on in the background of your subconscious and meditation sort of gives the space for the underlying drives that motivate your behavior to emerge so that you can then look at those drives and decide whether they're actually aligned with your values or not. So there's this kind of constant tension between kind of reflection and investigation, which I love in meditation. Completely. And I think it's worth, it's worth exploring the so-called connection between meditation and mindfulness, because I think in today's society, the two get used um, interchangeably. But I, I don't necessarily think that's always right. I think, I think they're two distinct things. And for me, one of the greatest objectives of meditation, if you want to call it an objective, is learning how to observe your thoughts and your condition rather than react to it. And I think where the connection between meditation and mindfulness is made is when you really learn to observe a feeling rather than react to it, that's when you're in a position to mindfully respond to whatever it is that's going on and I, I use the word respond instead of react because a reaction for me elicits um a response that hasn't necessarily been well considered in your own mind um whereas a response to me says right i've thought about this i've looked at it as a, probably as objectively as i can and i've chosen a path of action a mindful course of action based mm -hmm. on based on sort of looking at this condition or this thought or this motivation Mm -hmm. I mean, how how do you sort of create the link, or indeed, and deconstruct the link between mindfulness and meditation? Well, I I would say that um, mindfulness is a is a kind of specific kind of Western modality of meditation, as it emerged from Tibet and India. Um, so, mindfulness is sort of a secularized version of the practice, and and it's not a bad thing, but it 
it does kind of leave out all of the the ethical development the other practices that go along with meditation like in in sort of um spirituality in tibet and, and india where there's a kind of community involvement as well um but it sounds like kind of the mindfulness um, element that you're talking about there is like a witness position, almost like the difference between, say, um, a concentration exercise on your breath and mindfulness is that the concentration exercise on your breath is all about learning and knowing and experiencing the breath as it is without any change. But as you do that, as you start to kind of detach from judgment and from evaluating how you're breathing, you start to access this witness position, which is outside of your normal judgments and normal restrictions and kind of um, ways of thinking. It seems to be free to kind of dance over anything that it wants to. And one of the benefits of training your awareness with concentration exercises is that you can more often hold the witness position in situations where you would normally be, as you said, reactive rather than responsive. Mm -hmm. And this is actually, there's, there's really good neuroscientific work on this. Um, meditation, like they've done these studies on long-term meditators, like they put the Dalai Lama in a, in a CT scan, they've done all these studies on different people. And they find that like long-term meditators have um, much less um, responsive amygdala, so the emotional center of the brain. And they have a much larger prefrontal cortex where um, data is assessed and reflected upon from the amygdala. So it's not to say that like an overactive amygdala or feeling loads of emotion is bad. It's saying that you want to be able to balance the influx of emotion through the amygdala with a well-developed muscle of the prefrontal cortex, which is the rational, calm witness position. And so what meditators and what kind of yogis have been describing for years, which is this relationship between mind and body and between heart and mind um, kind of bears out in the science in that the more that you meditate, the more that you are able to access what your emotions actually are and not allow them to kind of fully rule you, but actually channel them into healthy coping behaviors. Yeah. So it can, it's almost literally changing your physiology the more you do it. Is that right? Yes. hundred percent, hundred percent. And I think fun. that's one thing that meditation teaches you is that your brain's very plastic actually. Yeah. I would fully agree with that. And I've got much less science to back it up. I only have a sort of personal anecdote around that. But even in myself, I notice a much more, uh, I wouldn't necessarily say rational, because I always think I've been quite a rational person, but um, I have much more capability to step back and observe a situation and plan how I want to respond to it um, than I did, you know, than I have at any point. And I think part of that comes with natural wisdom through growing up and maturity and, you know, taking on additional responsibilities that, adults these days have but i've got no doubt that meditation has played a huge role in that um and again the way you describe that is I, I guess there's never been a more relevant time in history to be able to fully or at least partially take control of of your own mind and responses when there are so many external influences that you know most of them we don't even realize they're there mm -hmm. yeah no and that's the scary thing, I think, is especially with um, phones, and I know that I always go here, I, I harp on about this, but like, you just don't know what's programmed into the app you're using to gain your attention and push it down certain avenues. And just, just taking something like Instagram Reels or TikTok videos alone, they're like short snippets of time that are repeated quickly. So that conditions your awareness. And the idea is with meditation that everything conditions your awareness. And 
TikTok videos condition it around quickly dancing from one topic to the next and never fully completing a thought or fully diving into anything. Yeah. And that's a very extreme example. But I think I, for example, even just when I'm working, will have many tabs open and my brain is spread between those tabs, you know, and I, I always feel like I'm, I'm moving between them too quickly, never quite diving deep enough to get anything done. It's so interesting you just brought that up because I was about to use the analogy that, you know, when we go into a meditative state, it's like closing down all the tabs or all the windows on your computer and, and almost letting the, again, I'm going to come across as an idiot to everyone who knows about computers here, but just letting the, letting the computer settle and come back to its natural kind of core state before it starts to go back and process and analyze things again. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. We were both thinking at the same time. I think the browser window is an excellent metaphor for the mind because I, I think that there's many times I've had too many tabs open when all I needed to do was close a few and then I'd be fine, you know? Yeah. So I used to use this analogy long, long ago, way before I started meditating. And it was, I've always been a user of lists and you know, notepads. I've always liked to, I suppose, decant my thoughts and things I need to do elsewhere such that they don't take up space in my brain. And that, you know, free space then allows me to go and perform or be productive or creative or whatever, or even just rest. And I used that analogy in the past with other people who I noticed seemed to just carry everything in their heads. And I said, you know, do you not, do you not find that your head just gets saturated with all these things and worry that you're not going to be able to remember what to do and everything else? And I just said, look, the way I tend to look at it is in the olden days, you, you plug in a memory stick, you download everything on there, take it away, safe in the knowledge that when you need to access it, you can, but you don't have to be kind of juggling all these plates at the same time just to move forward. Mm-hmm. So I think there is a lot of you know technology, uh, metaphors, similes to be used to to help people understand how it works. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That's a really good way of thinking about it. And I, I think, yeah, what what do you feel you've seen change in your? You've already mentioned kind of being more calm. Would you say you've noticed any other changes since you started meditating? That's a really good question. Again, I expect it's one of those ones where there have been a lot of changes and benefits, um, more than I'm probably capable of bringing to the fore. But you know, beyond calmness, ability to respond, I've I've heard it said that the the biggest, the ultimate goal with meditation is to be able to apply the state in sort of everyday waking life. So when you're yeah. in quotes not meditating you can still naturally apply the, the states without really thinking of it. And I've definitely been able to, to do that in a few instances. A couple of weeks ago, I was lying, I was actually lying in bed with, um, with my three-year-old son. He'd fallen asleep and I was sort of drifting in and out. But I had, I had a few things on my mind and I knew I wanted to fall asleep. And I actually remember consciously saying to myself, right, just apply some techniques here in, in your waking thought. Just watch all those lights go off. Just l- let the bubbles pop mm-hmm. one by one. And I found a few minutes later that my mind was empty and I hadn't consciously gone into sort of meditative practice or state. And it was probably then for the first time I thought, right, so you're, you are capable of applying these techniques and lessons whenever you need them. Mm-hmm. And next thing you wake up at 6.30 in the morning or something. Mm-hmm. And I think, wow, that was great. So <laughs> yeah, it's, it's that being able to um, extract techniques, practices, uh, benefits of it in waking life when you need it most and not just saying, okay, well, I'll have to wait a few hours until I get 10 minutes to myself to really, to really calm down here. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good way of thinking about it. That like the, I mean, the whole point of the practice deal with things as they are now, like I said, and not as they are in your imagination. So that skill is both 
um, useful and terrifying because it can get you into difficult places if you tell the truth sometimes in please see what's appropriate um, and and what what's going on with people in a, in a situation. I think you can be more sensitive to people. I think that's one of the key uh, benefits of it because you're not so busy caught up in what you think the person is feeling or, or what you imagine you know, the conversation is going like, but instead you're just enjoying the conversation and being there with them and being able to actually access the nervous state, you know, the, the way their body is, the way their nervous system is carrying itself. Um, so there's this, I, I mean, the studies actually show this, but I've experienced it myself, which is that empathy increases. There's, a, there's an increase in your ability to identify with other people and what they're mm -hmm. going through mm -hmm. and a desire to end their suffering in a way. Yeah, and isn't that a powerful thing to be able to offer your community? Yeah, ideally, it's the ideal, isn't it? Yeah. Hey, everyone. We just want to say a huge thanks for tuning into this episode of The Men Who Talk and take a quick break from the conversation to remind you how you can access more information on our collective. Head to our website, www.themenwho.com, drop us an email at letstalkatthemenwho.com or check out our Instagram, at themenwho underscore, to see what we're up to. Together, it's our purpose to raise the power of sharing what's on our mind and make it easier for men everywhere to access their well-being potential. So why don't you join us on this lifelong journey? Thank you, and back to the show. I do think one thing to mention um, is that, you know, mindfulness, when it's extracted from meditation, um, misses a lot of the kind of um, larger philosophical or ethical ideas and, and teachings that go along with the practice. Because um, one of the things that happens when you start to meditate is, is that you notice, at least I found that when you look inside yourself, there's always a way you could, you could decide that you're suffering. There's, there's always something to seize on to call your suffering. So whether it's a physical discomfort, whether it's a worry about someone or, or something, whether it's um, something you've missed or feel guilty about, your brain and your body can come up with unbelievable amounts of data about how things are difficult. Um, and one of, the, one of the first noble truths in Buddhism is obviously um, life is suffering. And, and that sounds a bit miserable, but actually the translation um, is a little bit different in that it's life contains suffering and it's true that life contains suffering that the spiritual path the path of meditation is about overcoming and dealing with that suffering but the first thing you have to do to understand it and to deal with it is to accept it is, is to accept that there is suffering either in you or in other people at every moment and while that sounds like a difficult process it's also a beautiful truth to recognize because that's the place from which the suffering can then be ended or dealt with and so the truth of life is, you know, difficult. It's, we're, we're, all, we're all caught in this unknown environment that we're born into. We, we wake up at some point and we go, who am I? What, what am I doing here? And we have to construct a purpose. And meditation is a way of just grounding yourself, finding a safe space inside yourself, inside your head, where um, this uncertainty of life and, and, and the unknowability of, of what happens after life um, for all of us and what happens even tomorrow given the news right now it, it's like dealing with all this uncertainty is a is a human universal we're all always dealing with that situation so that's where I think the empathy is produced from um, but there's something about recognizing the full depth of your suffering that somehow catapults 
the joys and the the love and the and the feelings of connections to other people because you feel all of them truthfully as well um if you're not denying suffering you're also not denying love so it's this kind of this truth finding practice um is both challenging and um beautiful and it, there's a there's a tibetan monk called chogim trumpa rinpoche who describes it as the warrior's path because it's the the path of never looking away from from what is you know yeah it's there's a lot <clears throat> a lot to grapple there particularly around <laughs> the sort of nature of suffering um, there is yeah but you're right i think again something that i experienced growing up was i guess particularly throughout my 20s was um a belief or a mindset that i could to a large degree eliminate suffering completely from my life and mm-hmm. and that becomes that becomes a kind of goal and you think right well let's try and plan and put everything in place so that i don't ever have to suffer in any way and you think i certainly sort of in the background strove towards that and it's only you know when you gain a bit of wisdom and do things like start meditating that you realize you can never you can never completely mitigate suffering from your life. In fact, as you've just described, it's an essential component. I think what things like meditating do, mindfulness, um, practices like that, is they, they give you the resilience to deal with it. You know, resilience and acceptance that it is going to come up. And actually, the best way you can prepare, I suppose, is by preparing your mind uh, and making your mind strong enough, but also malleable enough such that when suffering does come, and it will come, that you have the, the sort of inner resolve and hopefully the sort of ex- external tools to be able to address that and, and manage through it as best you can, rather than say, I'm just going to avoid that because X, Y, Z. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think that's where illness begins is that denial, that kind of repression. Um, but I, th- I think it's so interesting what you're saying, because like I was just contemplating where has meditation led me? Like when I started meditating, what, what things then started to change in my life and so many strange things started to change but one of them was what you said this this needs to know what i needed as a human like almost like a i was driven to find out um what is it to be a healthy human being and and i think that that's led me to better you know eating better relationships it's led me to um change kind of the direction of my profession and it's you know it also led to starting the men who and and meeting you guys and and this this thing we're doing because I realized that community you know when I was meditating I realized that there was an absence of those deep deep connections that um, we crave as humans and I think I think that's one of the things you start to notice it's not the suffering isn't something that like you focus on the suffering is something that tells you something that's out of balance in your life so that you can hopefully then mitigate it but like you say there's no elimination of suffering it's 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 like it's like physical pain. It's there for a reason, right? It tells you something about what's going on in reality. Um, yeah. And then, and then you start to see value in suffering because, because it teaches you and it helps mold you or influence you to become a more resilient, strong, again, in quotes, better human being. Yeah. And it, the, yeah, it's like, it's not seeking out suffering, but it might be seeking out discomfort in order to be able to bear suffering. Things like cold water swimming, like our friends at Edinburgh Blue Balls. Yeah. You know, that that is the seeking out of what might be considered by many to be suffering in order to better their health and well-being. I truly think that is one of the most mature states that we as humans can reach, whereby we not only start to see potential or future suffering as 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 having value in it. Obviously it's gonna hurt. 
Um, but but when you can understand that there will be lessons to learn and, and going into suffering with that mindset that it will teach you something or it may teach you a lot of things and then getting to the point where, like you say, to an appropriate degree, you sort of seek it out and make sure suffering is a part of your daily life because you understand that in the short term and over the long term, it's going to help shape you in a way that you wouldn't otherwise be shaped. Um, there's this question that's popped up in a magazine that I read quite regularly and it has this repeatable, uh, repeated um, question and answer session with sort of well-known people and one of the questions that they've lately put in is which do you find more puzzling the the, the fact that suffering exists or its frequent absence hmm. and when i read when i read this question first i really had to grapple with it and you know first of all break it down and you know okay what's that question asking well, why have they asked it and i think it's because we're in this we live in this world now whereby we've been able to eliminate suffering so much of suffering to such a huge degree to the point where when it does happen, people are surprised or disappointed. And actually, that is such an unhealthy society to live in, despite the fact that we do no longer suffer in so many of the ways that we have throughout history. I mean, what are your thoughts on, on that sort of dichotomy, I guess? Sorry, John, I, could you repeat just the dichotomy? I didn't, didn't quite grab that. Yeah. Before we publish this, I'm also going to Google dichotomy and make sure it's the right word I've used. <laughs> the, the question is, uh, along the lines of, um, which do you find more puzzling, the fact oh, yeah. that there is suffering in life or the complete or the relative absence of suffering? Yeah, I, I love this question because it gets exactly what meditation is teaching, which is that, um, yes, suffering is present, but it's also not present all the time. And joy is present and love is present and all these beautiful things so i fully agree with the sentiment behind that question which is um the the first noble truth of buddhism that life is suffering um maybe should be amended to life is suffering and joy because it it, it stratifies in that way and every every you know shade of gray in between that every different emotion we feel is beautiful in its own right and so it's it's almost like like you say i think I certainly grew up in an environment where suffering was eliminated to a large degree, and that that has made me a soft adult, a soft human being, and it's why I need to seek seek out discomfort when I can, because um, I think that my natural state and our natural state as humans is to seek comfort and and to avoid suffering. And I think we've it's it's hard to think about how you can kind of rewild ourselves, you know, how we can how we can rewild into just going outside in the winter the discomfort of that in scotland alone is is frustrating and can either be hidden from as i've tried to do many years or it can be bared it can be taken on as a challenge to go outside and because i love being outside i know it's good for my health and i just feel good out there um but so many times the story not the real feeling of cold keeps me in so it's it's just about that um, being clear with what's true when you're suffering, I guess, is is one of those benefits that comes with this practice. Yeah, let's let's get practical for a minute. Um, what, what sort of things have you introduced into your life daily or regularly that you would consider suffering or intentional suffering? I think cold water for me is is the most obvious one that I really don't enjoy. Like I I try to have cold showers as much as possible. I have the ocean nearby, but I've not been in, in it as much <laughs> as I would like went in it the other day um i think physical yoga practice is a form of this and and i remember thinking this once a few years ago that yoga is the practice of becoming comfortable in discomfort that's actually yeah. what it's all about if you had to boil it down and um the like the, the physical postures 
they make you feel amazing and sometimes they feel great in the moment but sometimes they don't and you just have to sit there with it and especially if you're in a, like a class that's you know postures held for five ten minutes at a time you have to sit there with your mind and, and body in discomfort and just soften around that and one of the amazing lessons of that is just um wow it's amazing what I can bear when I just pause for that moment if I create a little bit of distance between the sensation and the story it's amazing how much I can sit with um that I didn't know I could sit with so I think any physical practice really any any exercise that where you're you know if you're cycling you feel the, the swell of your thighs on that hill if you're running the the feeling of your lungs about to burst you know there's there's so many different ways that that discomfort can be brought into your life um and I think I'm I'm always on the lookout for new ones but I'm I'm also <laughs> quite happy with what I've got at the moment but I'd love to hear yours John what, what what do you feel you bring into your life that's a little bit uncomfortable like you I you know running I have a love-hate relationship with for that very reason <clears throat> I love it because it gives me time and headspace and physical benefits mental benefits but it also is hard you know there's a lot of times when you're out there thinking we should let's just let's just wrap this up but you don't because you get to a point where you understand that you know you will get so many more benefits from from pushing through um cold showers i have a cold shower every day for 30 seconds nice. uh, after a hot shower i hasten to add <laughs> but again i get really uncomfortable but i feel phenomenal afterwards and you know something i really i genuinely do want to engage with more is the likes of the edinburgh blue ball so regular exposure to natural cold water whether it's in the sea in the river um but something i think i've embraced more and more as i've got older is the discomfort of having difficult conversations oh that's a great one yeah so again a natural inclination is just to avoid it hope it'll go away but and i still find it really difficult to incite them and even to engage in them but you know the more you have them you realize that they're actually unlocking or unblocking greater potential for harmony yeah that's a great way of putting it I, yeah that's a really great way of putting it i i also have this one as one that i'm constantly trying to get better at for sure and and i think it's you know not everyone wants to have a difficult conversation either so it's about like the other people's boundaries as well but i i do i do uh that feeling when you're about to say something that you've been you know not wanting to say or have been wanting to say for a long time and it's like a full body panic that can come over you right so that mm. that is like the feeling of you know about to jump off a bridge into a river it's like this these like natural kind of human reactions to what we perceive as danger or threat and uh, meditation again just gives you that moment for the amygdala your emotional center to calm down so that your prefrontal cortex your calm rational center has some time to think about what's going on as yeah. well as reacting to what's going on yeah for sure now that we've talked about you know what meditation is what the benefits are, what, what you sort of learn from it. I think the question in a lot of people's minds will be, how do you do it? You know, how do you start a practice? What does it mean to sit there and meditate? What do I physically do to try and access this place? And how do I sustain that over a prolonged period of time? So again, this is, I think, where we can learn a lot from you and the way you've approached it from day one is starting out. Like what, I guess if you were to kind of give Joe's guide to meditation, what would it look like? It's it's really interesting because I think a lot of the things that will get you meditating are more like structural changes you can make than the practice itself. So, but first of all, you've already said it, John, is get a good guided meditation. So 
everyone resonates with a different voice. Everyone resonates with a different style of meditation. And I would recommend just, you know, if you do one you don't like, go and try a few others and just spend that 10 minutes, 15 minutes sitting, absorbing the energy of the voice that you're hearing and really letting go of the idea that you can't meditate and just allowing that guided meditation to really carry you through. Just release all expectations. There's a um, Zen Buddhist idea of beginner's mind, you know, this shojen, like approaching it as if it's new. Um, so once you've got that, once you've got this guided meditation, there's a couple of other things, which is A, working out which time of day is good for you to meditate. Just don't, don't try to shove it into the morning if you've got a busy morning, put it somewhere else. Um, and then finding like a space, having a pillow that you sit on specifically to do it or a mat that you lie on to meditate is perfect. One place in your house that you do it all the time. Just something about that kind of regularity is really, really useful. And then what I'd say is really important is two, two things. One, once you've stopped using the guided audio, if you feel like you can sit there in silence on your own and follow your breath, you, you want to get two things. One is an intention. So why do you want to meditate? You know, a reason for why you're doing it. It may just be, I need to find a little bit of time for myself. That could be a good enough intention. Maybe it's to find more peace, stability, calmness. Maybe it's to explore who you are. Maybe it's more grand healing and, and spiritual in some way. But the intention is going to keep you coming back to your mat to practice, because if you know why you're doing it, you will actually do it, I think. And then the final thing I think to mention is that, like I said, everyone has a different um, natural inclination towards certain styles of meditation. And one of the things that when you start practicing on your own is to find what I call an anchor. So the thing that you choose to start your meditation on that anchors your awareness to that one point. So for me, from most of the time I've been meditating, it has been sound. I'm very sound sensitive. I play music. I, I um, love conversation and, and I just really tune into sounds in an environment very well. So I used that kind of natural inclination to use sound as the first thing that I do to tune myself in. But there are so many different kinds of anchors. Um, a mantra is essentially an anchor, which is a word that you repeat um, over time. And you could use a traditional Sanskrit mantra like Om or Ram or Om Namo Shivaya, or you could just make up one that you like, like flowers or kittens. It can literally be anything. It's just to focus your mind. I mean, I guess you probably don't want to make it like guns or something, something like that. Make it light. Um, and then there's the breath, which is just a brilliant anchor because it's like this flowing tidal motion. And, and I think following your breath does teach you something very unique about the universe, that it doesn't work in this either or on off. It's this full sort of circular process, this breath that never quite stops inside of you. Um, then there's physical sensations, which are a really nice anchor if you're more of a sensory kind of feeling person, you know, paying attention even to the sensations of your sit bones, your butt on the floor is like one that can just really ground you if you're feeling a bit heady. Um, but there are just so many anchors that you could choose. But the important thing is to choose one and to stick with it uh, for a decent amount of time, not to start thinking, ah, maybe my breath is better. Maybe if I focus on my knee, I'll be able to meditate. It's about choosing that knee and staying on that knee and making sure that that keeps you in one position until you're at a point where that mindfulness witness kicks in, where you can kind of step back and just look at, look at what's happening, you know? Um, 
so that's sort of the way that I would think about it and yeah what about you John do you have any advice for people when they're starting out I think you've covered pretty much all of it the only thing I will add that has been very valuable for me is is coming up with a um, with a picture in your mind of what thoughts look like to you so what they look like when they come into your mind but almost more importantly than that what they look like when they disappear and I use the um, I use the analogy of the the strip in Las Vegas and lights being on and you kind of gradually being able to turn those lights off but other things I've used is um, my mind being a bowl and when I start meditating I pull the plug on that bowl and just all of the thoughts and everything that's in my mind sort of slowly fall through the plug hole until the point I'm at uh, I'm in a state where there's an empty bowl and I just kind of ruminate in that bowl and then inevitably thoughts come up as they do um, they might be bubbles um, and you know you just observe that bubble floating across your mind and again observe it rather than respond to it and eventually those bubbles float away or they pop and that's the visual equivalent of that thought sort of disappearing from your head and that really helps me with the idea that thoughts are transient you know they never they're never permanent they come of their own will they leave of their own will but you can reach a point where you can start to influence what those thoughts are the shape of the thoughts and, and how long they last so i'd say having that is really important um yeah i think you you've covered the most of it um I like I like that idea of visualizing thoughts though, like because the bigger the enemy of meditation is is thinking, and it's not that it's something to not do. Thinking is just going to happen, but it's about how you respond to kind of thoughts by. And I remember that my first visualization of my thoughts was like a you know like a, a train station, like a ticker tape kind of scrolling news feed mm, uh, that just was going through my head, and it was either linguistic, you know words going past or it would be images emotions feelings but they'd always be they'd always have this like you say transient quality that they, they, they kind of move through if you allow them to if you don't get stuck to them yeah i think that's important as well the transient nature of them mm. and having a having a metaphor in your mind that is transient so the ticker tape bubbles the lights the bathtub whatever it is um so we said at the start that you have very kindly recorded a, a 10 minute practice for people to download uh, right here if they choose to what can people expect from that well so yeah it's essentially just this this sort of very simple guided meditation that you could use to sort of start your practice and one of the things we crave i think especially in the internet age is novelty so we might uh, think that we need to do a different meditation all the time but actually when you're starting out what you need is kind of regularity and similarity so this is just a breath-based meditation but you can really kind of you can alter it in any way you want. And it's just, it's perfect for morning. It's perfect for evening. It's kind of like an all-purpose meditation for you. So um, what I would say is just give it a go and then get in touch if you have any questions, like on Instagram, on through our email address. Just let us know if you have anything, any feedback or thoughts about that meditation as well. Fantastic. Well, I'd encourage everyone to, to download it. I'm definitely going to give it a go. Um, I'd love to have you as my sort of personal meditation guide or teacher, but um, I guess this will have to do for now. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just come in every morning and, and guide you through something. Yeah, mornings are difficult, um, but after mm -hmm. you know, after the boys are tucked off to nursery, then that's cool. <laughs> yeah, this is why I say do it any time of the day, right? Doesn't do yeah. I just yeah, I need to get up earlier, but that's also a challenge. Um, <laughs> mate, that was brilliant. I'm I'm so glad we got to we finally got around to discussing that. You know, I feel I've. I've taken a lot of wisdom from you. I hope the listeners have as well. And, and hopefully I've been able to contribute some of my, um, some of my own 
so-called wisdom to to the conversation you always, as well. You always do, John. Of course you do. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Um, so let's 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 finish off in our traditional way. So I have a question to you from a guest from episode number nine, who's Frederick. And then, if I may, also ask you to leave a question for our next guest, if you have one, that would be great. Um, the question from Frederick, and the topic with Frederick was on death and dying. Um, so the question he's posed to you is. How do you feel about the fact that you're going to die one day? Just an easy one. Just, just a nice, easy question. <laughs> well, contained within the question is, what, what does it feel like? So if you don't mind, I might just take a moment to feel what that feels like. Maybe everyone can as well. Of course, feel away. Oh, I get like a... I've thought about this question a lot in other contexts, but in this moment, I'm getting like a heart flutter, the feeling of like, that's, that's, a, that's a difficult thing to understand and comprehend even. The idea of my brain or my consciousness not being here or at least not being in this form. And I, because meditation over many years has taught me that my awareness does seem to be something distinct from my body. So I, although I'm contained in this body and obviously I'm very, I'm, I'm bound up in it, there's maybe part of me or something within me that goes on past death. So it's not that Joe goes on past death with all of my neuroses and foibles and personality. It's that there's an element of me that carries on that's connected to that place I go in meditation that is nothingness, that is connected to all where I hear the sound of a bird outside my window and I think it could be me because I'm so unattached to the personality structure and body that I call Joe in this moment. But having said that, the idea of, of Joe going away, it makes me feel um, panicked a little bit. But I also feel peace. I, I said this to my partner the other day, Sky, that um, I don't really understand. I don't often or ever really have regrets anymore because I understand the world in a different way. I understand that it's a causally kind of constructed unfolding plane in which I'm kind of riding a, a wave, you know, of, of our particular time and period. And I feel like I've lived so much. I feel like I've experienced so much. So I, in a way, when I imagine what it would be like to die or, or I, what I feel like when I imagine my death, I feel quite um, grateful. I feel grateful for having been alive and for having experienced the things I've experienced in this monkey body that I have for this little brief window of time. And so it's, like I said, with, with meditation, it's suffering and it's joy when I, when I think of that question. It's a really difficult one, but um, really good to think about, I think, for people. Yeah, I think it is important to, to face that question early in life. How do you feel about it, John? What's your thoughts? Like you, I feel, <clears throat> I do feel a sense of peace. There is a sense of peace that uh, there's a state that you will transition into at the end of all of this. Um, got my own views on what I think that state might be, and it's linked to it is linked to perpetual energy, to to spiritualism, um, which we'll get into another time. I feel a peace that, you know, that's my belief, and I've reached that belief. There's also a sense of excitement, though, and it's an excitement not that you know one day you're going to die one day, but it's an excitement that you're you're excited. I'm excited to get on with the things I want to get on with, and you know those things sort of pursuing my career, uh, instilling lessons and wisdom and. 
a love for certain things in my children. Um, and I don't think you'd have that excitement if you kind of knew that there was just a perpetual ongoingness of life. Um, mm-hmm. So I think, again, it's, it's one of those things, I think initially when you think about the concepts, you probably shy away from it and then, and then you probably think negative connotations, but then you do get reach a point where you think, okay, well, just like everything else, you can choose to channel the energy that this question incites in you in a positive way. And I think the energies that I'm starting to starting to channel for me, particularly after I spoke to Frederick on this podcast, is yeah, the the, the peace and the excitement. Mm. Um, I think excitement is a really interesting one. Like I almost feel like curiosity as well. Like oh, what I wonder what's on the other side of of that. You know? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's wow. I need to get someone on to talk about that. But yeah, there is there is a sense of excitement, and you hope that. When you reach the end of your life, whether you have time to think about the end of your life or whether it comes in an instant that, you know, there will be a part of you that, a part of your mind that turns to think, yeah, what's next? How can I bring all the lessons from this life, this experience into that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and contribute positively in whatever way that, that kind of manifests? I think that's it. I think there's something about considering the end of your life that makes you want to contribute more positively as much as you can while you're here, you know? It's it's somehow again it's that the the accessing truth somehow produces this beauty or grat- gratitude for your life. Absolutely. Um, well, look, I think we're going to get Frederick back on at a later date to go into a little bit more depth on this because he brought a huge amount of wisdom to it, and I think we only scratched the surface by his own admission. So we'll look forward to that. Um, before we wrap up and before we get on to our next guest, do you have do you have a question to leave for them? So yeah, I have a question. Um, it's related to something we talked about today about suffering. Now, the question is, would would you, if you had a button in front of you that could end your suffering for life, would you do it? Given all the things that we've said so far about suffering, having certain benefits and discomfort, producing the ability to bear kind of being human, you'd make that choice. Very deep. It's a difficult one. It's a very difficult one. I'm going to think hard about that in advance of the next guest having to answer that question. But for now, Joe, thank you so much for coming back on The Men Who Talk. Um, I know you've got a couple of episodes that, that you're going to be hosting in the pipeline. So really looking forward to those. And yeah, great to just talk meditation with you. And I'll be, uh, I'll be tuning into your guided practice as soon as I can. Excellent. It's a pleasure. It's always good to talk to you, John. Awesome, mate. See you soon. See you soon. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of The Men Who Talk. We really hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as we did and can apply some of today's wisdom to your own mental well-being practices. For more information on this episode or our collective, head to the show notes or visit our website www.themenwho.com or head over to Instagram at themenwho underscore. If you've found value in what we've been sharing, feel free to rate and review our show as it really helps us spread the word and reach more listeners. For now, keep talking, stay well, and be sure to join us next time for another episode of The Men Who Talk.